Hi, and welcome to Anne Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wayne. And I'm Molly O'Brien. And introducing on lead guitar, it's Mr. Joe Perry. Joe Perry, an original bad boy from Boston, is a founding member of hard rock legends Aerosmith, with whom he rose from Beantown Bar Band to multi-platinum mega-act by the end of the 1970s. But after spiraling out into a flurry of drugs and mediocre music, Aerosmith would eventually stage one of the biggest comebacks in rock history and go on to become the biggest selling American hard rock act of all time. Today we'll be talking all about him through his memoir, Rocks. Rocks. My life in and out of Aerosmith. Rocks. Rocks. Rocks is the name of an Aerosmith album. I, I'm aware of that. <laughs> it's also the name of a style of music and a kind of geologic feature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And diamonds. Diamonds. Don't be fooled by the rocks that I got. I'm still Joe from the block. Are all boys from Boston bad? Uh, Can you even be a bad boy from Boston? Or not be a bad bad boy from Boston? I think all boys from Boston are bad. I think all boys <laughs> from Boston are bad boys, but I don't know if that necessarily means that they're bad men. Oh, okay. You see what I'm saying there? I do. You can't be from Beantown and not be a Beantown bad boy. Beantown bad boy. Yes. The boys are back in town. I feel like, I know it's an Irish band, but I feel like it's... It, taxonomically should be Boston. Yes. When you're singing about the boys being back in town, don't you think about it just being like Boston, Boston or Philly, someplace like that. Rochester. Yeah. It's gotta be like, even, uh, not Cincinnati, Cleveland. Cleveland Cleveland. is a place where the boys are back. Is that us? Is that some shade to Cleveland? Uh, kind of, or is it insulting to Cincinnati? I just think that there's a certain kind of, uh, like rust belt, Look, I'm going to bring class into it, like work, more working class town. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that Cincinnati is Post-industrial. Not, yeah, but Cincinnati is like a weird thing because it's a it's a little bit southern. It's a little bit uh, northern. It, it's it's not really your classic like northern swath. Of, it's not uh, really a town that you go back to. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I have not been the boys are back in town to Cincinnati in a long time. Drats. Maybe this is just drawing from personal experience. <laughs> but we're not talking about the the thinnest of Lizzie's today, are we? No. If they have a memoir, we should definitely. Yeah. Definitely the main it. guy from Thin Lizzie's is really interesting. He's like a black Irishman. Cool. Yes. I believe there's a statue of him somewhere in Ireland. Thin Lizzie memoir. Anyway, we're yeah, we're talking about Joe. So this is uh, forming kind of a diptych uh, with our last piece, uh, which was about Dennis Dunaway, bassist of um, Alice Cooper. Uh, These guys kind of have a very similar era and kind of a career trajectory, although uh, Alice Cooper was in a much different lane, but uh, rising up the ranks of the hard rock scene. They cross paths. Tracking along perfectly over the decade of the 70s, -hmm. although after that, they both go very different directions where Alice Cooper kind of dives more and more into like being a character or maybe a caricature. Yes. While Aerosmith uh, blows up and up and up like some kind of uh, uh, dirigible, some kind of Zeppelin. If only there was like a metaphor for a kind of rock and roll uh, Zeppelin. Yeah. Uh, But it's not really coming to me. So the Hindenburg. Yeah, exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a band. Right. The Hindenburgs. (laughs) Um, uh, yes. Yeah. So how much did you know or care about Aerosmith before we dove into uh, rocks? I feel like everyone, because uh, Aerosmith has existed for so long that everyone has like a slightly different entry point, um, but yes. like in their distinct periods. They have my entry many point, doors that you could come in through. Yeah, the doors. 
Jim Morrison. Um, Hashtag Jim Morrison. Hashtag lizards. Uh, I came into Aerosmith straight up in that. uh, I don't want to miss a thing playing as a slow dance in my high school dance or a middle school dance. Um, Armageddon style Aerosmith as well as like Jaded was like a pop. I remember Jaded Jaded and I don't want to miss a thing. Yeah, that was my Aerosmith. And then I kind of backtracked into the yeah, yeah, the other stuff like 80s and 70s stuff. I feel like uh, don't want to miss a thing was I mean, we're going to show our age here, but we were I was a little too young to like identify songs with bands when that came out. That was like maybe 96 and I I didn't get 98. I I didn't really get into music after that. So it was just like, oh, that song on the radio. Mm -hmm. And then I like put the band to it a little later. But it, it very much felt like an older band being like, you kids like this, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, it's, it's funny reading Joe's book is that like they got, so their first big kind of big song was dream on mm-hmm. dream on, which was an album cut that never made it big. And then it retroactively became a hit yeah. once the, uh, they started blowing up with toys in the attic and, um, they were pissed at their label for looping in strings, like an orchestra arrangement <laughs> over it at the time. They were like, live it. This isn't rock man. Like, what are these strings doing here? And then obviously by the time I become, uh, exposed to Aerosmith they're like they're down with the strings yeah it's like an orchestral band yeah I don't know Hans Zimmer ass shit don't want to miss a thing also because Liv Taylor was in uh, Armageddon it just had the feel of like a corporate tie-in it was like uh, (laughs) the toy in the McDonald's uh, box of rock songs look it's daughter yes here here be daughter yes like as part of somewhere in someone's contract one stipulated the other yeah it would just, just be funny to like be in your first. I assume that was Liv Tyler's first like major Hollywood production. To just be like, oh, dad, dad. On the soundtrack. Like, it's not dad, just even my thing anymore. It's follow everything that I do. You have to check up with me all the time, dad. It's, I don't know. It's like making a, a pine box derby car, and then your 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 dad puts a, a little more work into it than you do, and it's not even your pine box derby car anymore. You know, throw a little more uh, WD forty on those axles. Yeah. Axel Roses. Those Axel Roses. Also, I mean, Liv Tyler was in the crazy video, so this isn't the first time that she's benefited from Daddy's, uh, Daddy's musical, musical yes. talent. Uh, that's a whole nother. That's a whole nother thing. But let's talk about Joe. We're not here to talk about Steven. We're no, here we're to not. Talk about Joe. The, the the toxic twins, as they're called. Um, apparently, this is like a thing in the press. The toxic twins. Steven and Joe. Yeah, they have a volatile uh, musical partnership, which we will explore in depth. Great, great, great. Um, But let's let's get started. Joe Perry was born on September 10th, 1950 in Hopedale, Massachusetts. His mom is Italian. His dad is Portuguese. So he's got this like sort of a a southern uh, European heritage. Go ahead and say it. Swarthy. I wasn't going to say that. He's just he uh, he's got like, you know, he he's got a strong cultural background. He but he's in like fucking, you know, New ha- or Massachusetts and New Hampshire, which has like, it's I just, feel like, like the most a, white bread zone ever. A preponderance of these mid 70s rock guys are Italian. Yes. But I think that because you come from like, you know, your granddad, like singing. Yeah. Aria, you know, in your the gra- yeah. shop or whatever. And all your uncles playing accordion out on the street and while they're, you know, uh, churning the pasta through the pasta grinder. Yeah. Um, he loves rock and roll from a young age. Mm-hmm. Elvis is obviously an influence. Um, he's into the looks. He's into the music. He His Italian grandfather tries to give him a haircut and he says, I need sideburns like Elvis. And his grandfather responds, Joey, you're not old enough for sideboard. 
Sideboard? Sideboard. <laughs> you know, son, no, no nephew of mine has the sideboard. <laughs> it's a sinful, the sideboard. Um, he he wants to play guitar. He mows lawns to be able to afford his first guitar. Um, he wants a, a hollow-bodied Gibson, like the one that Chuck Berry plays. Ooh, that's a classy guitar. He doesn't get it. Oh, um, no. He gets like whatever like the super, super generic equivalent is, I, which I feel like is a common tale amongst guitarists. Is like, an I want that one, and I got oh that one. Yeah, it's like Sears plastic number. Yeah, I just went out of my way to pick up a, an old Sears brand guitar uh, just because I thought that they look cool, and I I wanted a retro guitar, mm-hmm. uh, but I didn't have enough money to buy an actual retro guitar. So I bought uh, a Sears, like a guitar that would have been sold at Sears, but like a 50 year old one. And it's that's cool. Chill. Yeah, that's like a, that's it's like a thing. Cool. It's cool, man. It's hanging right behind me. Can Sounds you confirm? good. Or no, I guess it's right next to me. Right it's now. right next to you. The guitar is right next to Chris. The guitar is coming from inside the house. Um, he. Joe, Joe is horny for guitars. Yes. He he says, I lusted for guitars. Well, the um, guitar is shaped like a beautiful woman. He says that the Gibson hollow body reminds him of Sophia Loren. <laughs> <laughs> and he his friend has like a sick guitar and he opens the case and he smells the wood and he said he, he felt the stirrings of a heart on. Okay. <laughs> he gets literal boners for guitars. Hey, uh. Buddy, do you want to just, uh, do you mind if I just go into your closet with your guitar for a second? Just, can I just uh, take a whiff of that? Is your mom calling calling just, you or something? Can I just get, can, can I just I lick, lick the guitar? The room with your guitar Please. for a minute? It smells like wood chips. <laughs> Um, he has, despite being like this, like very like nature loving, curious kid who loves like, he, so he like grows up uh, going to this lake, Lake Sunapee, Sunapee, Sunapee in New Hampshire. Um, he's like, He's sort of a would-be marine biologist, but he can't focus in school and he gets really terrible grades. So his sure. parents send him to a uh, boarding school in Vermont. To whale camp. Um, and that's where he really, <laughs> to whale camp. <laughs> Semester at sea. Um, so he goes to boarding school in Vermont and that's where he kind of like really solidifies in his sort of counter-cultural lifestyle. For example, everyone has lots of Robitussin around because the harsh Vermont winters give everyone coughs. And sure. so like they just are robo-tripping constantly. Wow. I did not associate that with like 1960s. Yeah. No, they, they, they were on it way before like Lil Wayne. Look, uh, just like in Jurassic Park, life finds a way. Kids find a way. To get high. Anything is anything is drugs if you believe in yourself. Yes, exactly. If you consume enough of it quick enough. Yes. Um, he gets kicked out of boarding school eventually for refusing to cut his hair. Remember, this is at the time when like having long hair is the ultimate cultural. Yeah, protest. but also having long hair is like having hair over an inch and a half long. Yeah. People are like, oh, my God, this guy is going to move to Cuba and join the revolutionaries. And yeah. it's like, oh, I haven't gotten a haircut in three weeks. Right now, your your look would probably get you some double takes. And oh, yeah, I would I would have to write lines on the chalkboard or get my hands wrapped by the nuns. Yeah, get it right. Get it tight. Um, he he starts gigging around at uh, Lake Sunapee with his band, which is just called the Jam Band. Great. Classic. Basic. Cool. And he meets this guy, Stephen Tallarico, <laughs> who is a he's a loudmouth singer. He does things like start food fights at the like resort restaurant where Joe works. And like Joe thinks of, he's like, this guy's fucking obnoxious. <laughs> and 
they uh, gradually, not, not hard to believe. Yeah, no. Um, but gradually they start talking and they realize that they're basically like the only, some of the only people that actually want to have a career in music and they're ambitious and they're like, everyone else is just like screwing around and I want to actually be serious about yeah. it. Um, and so they kind of like connect that way. And Joe moves to Boston in 1970. Steven follows him. And then basically like the original, close to the original Aerosmith lineup is formed in Boston at that time. And what, like, what year is this? 1970. So they're, they're like 20. Yeah. Great. They're like Babs, little Babs. Um, they live. Well, it's hard to tell because it's like the late sixties. Because I, so I feel like your music career can start as early as like fifteen. Mm-hmm. It's true. And somewhere along the way, like Joe gets a pass and doesn't have to go to Vietnam. Yeah. Like, weren't the Beatles like playing in Hamburg by the time they were like fourteen years old or something? Yeah. I don't the, know. the Beatles were uh, child stars. Yeah, yeah. They were actually just ten years old. Yeah. And the haircuts were meant to hide their unnaturally smooth brows. So they could get into so they could get into bars and stuff. So they could party. So they could go play skiffle music in the like coal mines of <laughs> northern England. Uh, um they uh so yeah, Steven basically follows Joe. The band like lives in this sketchy apartment on Commonwealth Ave in Boston. Uh Steven shows up and he's like, I'm here, you motherfuckers, and this band is about to burn. So Steven's <laughs> is that like a threat? Is that uh, good? I'm about to set you guys on fire. Sure. Um, Joe says that there were like early indications of strong musical chemistry between Steven and me. So like, you know, he plays the guitar, Steven does the singing. I don't think Steven ever plays any guitar. Um, and like Joe's whole influence is like being a bluesman, like yes. being a rock and roll bluesman. Yes. Um, that's one, like his one, whole four thing. or five chord. All, all he wants to do is rock. Like jungle, that's established jungle, 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 pretty jungle, jungle, early. Yeah. And the, the, Steven takes Joe to like to New York on a sort of like romantic friend date. And he's like, we're going to go to the oyster bar in grand central station and we're going to drink Guinness. And then he says, I'll show you where I buy my espadrilles. (laughs) So like Steven is like, I think Joe at this time, he's like, Steven's, you know, more sophisticated than I am, but he's also like kind of obnoxious. Yes. Um, He describes him as like, he's has manic energy and Joe is the sullen and silent one spending all my time looking for the lost cord. (laughs) And that's something that I feel like has been reflected in other memoirs. The God cord. Well, yeah. And, um, the bi- the big build is something that Den- uh, Dennis Dunaway referred to, mm-hmm. like the big build, and then uh, it reminds me also of Nile Rodgers's um, deep hidden meaning. Yes, that DHM. DHM. I just love that there. You know, everyone has their own kind of version of this. Look, you can something. You can. There are only so many chords, but if you put them together in just the right way, with just the right overtones, it's and just magic. the right rhythm. You can, ooh, ooh, ooh! It sings. Ah. So the band gets their first like kind of big ish break um, when they play for their eventual manager, this guy, Frank Connolly, who is a sort of mythic figure, a concert promoter uh, in Boston who has bought, brought like all the good bands yeah. into Boston so far. And so we got to one day get into these guys, these yeah. like concert promoter guys yeah. uh, and managers. Because they, they're, they're all... not just one band. They have like the keys to all the all the acts. Yeah. And I love when. uh when you dig into these guys, it's like the surface level is like Steven Tyler twirling scarves around a microphone. <laughs> and then you go to Frank Connolly and that guy is absolutely I know nothing about him, but I can guarantee you he is one step away from like the mob dumping bodies into the river. You're so right. He does have like m- like underworld connections. Right. Um, All these guys do. And yeah. it's like these like rock goofy rock bands going around like playing playing their electric guitar solos and then like 
directly behind the backstage, there's like mob guys like shadowy putting guns figures, in people's mouths. Sa- shadowy figures in nice suits. Yes. Well, because at the end of the day, I feel like, you know, the concert industry, the record industry is like sort of resource management. Yeah. Right. And it's like an informal industry. So it's like obvious cash. Based on like sparks of huge talent that might Mm -hmm. fade out at any moment. It's like easily exploitable. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of interesting labor stuff going, going in there. Uh, A lot of substances moving through it. Yep. Yep. Totes. Yeah. Um, when they audition for Frank in this uh, sort of old theater, he is only visible as the glow of a huge cigar in the vast darkness. <laughs> That's Frank Connolly. See. So he loves them. He's like, you guys are really crushing it. And he's just this like character. He starts managing them. And like Joe clearly has this like amazing reverence for Frank Connolly, where he always refers to them as like boys, like boys, you are not just, you're not hitting the small time. We're going for world domination. And yeah. I intend to like help you get there. But he's not like, he's scared. But he's not like sketch. Like he's yeah. he wants the best for the band. He Boys, also you, have a, you ever seen ten thousand dollars in small muck bills? <laughs> Boys, you know how to hold a gun. <laughs> We're going for the big time, not he, small fries. He he like he drinks a tremendous amount, and there's Joe says there's only one time where he like loses control. Um, that he's like driving the band somewhere, and he's clearly had one or eight too many, and so he's like, "Boys, boys, I'm feeling a little tired. I think we need to to pull over." And they go to a motel, and he's like, "Boys, take my wallet. Give me the finest room they have." <laughs> and then like he shows up the next day, like nothing happened. Like he dude is a champ. Um, he also the probably the most amazing to me passage in this book is telling Joe how to best romance a woman. Is this Frank's advice? This is Frank's advice. Um, Joe is like kind of a late bloomer. Like always, he lost take your virginity. romantic advice from somebody who you describe as a glowing cigar in a dark room. Yeah, that's like a that's straight up good advice. <laughs> Joe Joe is like he. I think he lost his virginity when he was like eighteen, which is like to me like kind of on the later side for the the sixties, but whatever. Um, so he's like Joe, you. Your your ideal date it involves a long train ride from Boston to Montreal, a stay at a quaint bed and breakfast where the proprietor speaks only French, a shopping trip where you'll help her select a pair of thigh-high fur-lined boots fashioned in Russia, and a quiet dinner of pâté, roasted quail, and French champagne. And you have to get an attic room in this uh, Airbnb. That's a date? Quebecois French Airbnb. It's a weekend, baby. Yeah, it's a weekend. But, I mean, he's... He I don't know. Uh, like, uh, pâté might be a little heavy for a, for a first date. For a pre-coital. For a pre-coital. Yeah. You don't want to be let it down with all that uh, organ. Yeah, maybe not a, maybe not a full pre- uh, prefix. Yeah. Not not the whole tasting menu. Keep it light. Yeah. Um, but Frank, he puts his money where his mouth is. He gets them a showcase in New York. Um, they think they saw Aerosmith thinks they've signed to Columbia. They've actually signed with a producer duo, this duo Lieber Krebs hyphenated. That's what they're referred to as. And Which also sounds like a piece of medical equipment. Yes. Or like a like a rare genetic disease. Yes. Oh, he's got Lieber Krebs. He was yeah, born he without without any nostrils. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's gonna be a long he's a mouth breather forever um they they're the ones signed to columbia so if they fire aerosmith aerosmith is is fucked okay um so they've got a middleman to a major label yes okay so in 1972 they cut their first album um dream on is on their first album should we listen to this masterpiece yeah i was just listening to a few aerosmith albums uh today uh and one of my first impressions was just that on these first few albums, the um, the difference between like the singles and the um, 
album tracks is like really tremendous. So let's listen to uh, from the first track of the album, Make It, for a second. Great. Uh, which is, you know, still a good song, but, uh, you know, nothing that I would put on and be like, whoa. <laughs> uh, but here. Standard. Yeah, you've got those like blue r- blues riffs. I feel like you could hear on dozens of records around this time. You know, yeah, it's almost like music at this time was like everyone had figured out the blueprint. Yeah, it was just what you were going to do to make yourself stand out. Like yeah. for Alice Cooper, it was let's just like wear weird makeup and have like a crazy stage show that involves guillotines or whatever. Sure, like you can get most people can like get the bike to stand up or you know it's <laughs> but they're it's whether or not you're ready for like the race yeah you know nice well speaking uh, speaking of being ready for the race here is then track three dream on like a fraternal cousin of Stairway to Heaven, right? Yes. These sort I, of I like very you... thought over uh, passages of like twiddling, diddling guitar. Yes. And there is a, um, and that's the difference be- that I would think I was thinking of between something like Make It and something like Dream On, that mm-hmm. there's like a, a soul, a DHM, a deep hidden meaning. Yeah, the lost chord. To use Al Rogers, the lice chord in this, especially when uh, Tyler really uh, lets loose and hits those high notes. And yes. You're like, oh, there's something here yes. that's more than just a, a highly competent blues rock band playing the blues rock. Yes. Well, let's hear one of those notes. You're like, oh yeah, this is a pretty good chorus. I think I can sing. I, I can hit notes. Yes. You know, it's pretty good. He's still so far away from like, hit, like classic Steven Tyler sound. And then you're like, whoa! This is this is. That's Steven Tyler. Is the over the top shit? Yeah. yeah. That's I think, and he eventually figured it out that being over the top was the sell. Yeah, and I think Joe Perry's thing is always just like it's just got to rock. But yeah, like he, I don't care what you say or how you say it, mm-hmm. but like it's got to rock. Yeah, and you're almost like can hear him here. It's I mean it's confident, but it doesn't have the balls outness that the later stuff has, where you can almost hear him being like. I- Guys, I think I can go up the extra octave. Should I, should I go up the extra octave? And everybody else be like, yeah, sure, hit yeah. it if you can. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, a little later it becomes even uh, even bigger. But yeah, that's a good song. This is a band that I would see in a bar and be like, yeah, these guys are good. Exactly. Um, that's I think that's how they like basically gained their initial fandom of just being like people seeing them live and being like, this is great. So, but in the meantime, 
Joe shares that like Stephen he's Stephen Tellerico has named his change his name to Stephen yeah. Tyler. He's like very shy on stage and he doesn't do any kind of like in between song banter, which Joe thinks is like crucial for just kind of like keeping your show flowing. Uh, in the early days, highly disagree. What when you're when you're bar banding, I think that you need to have look. It goes two songs in the beginning, mm-hmm. brief introduction. Yeah, remind people what the name of the band is. Thank them for coming. Maybe do one joke. Three to four more songs, yeah. maybe even five straight songs. Just run through them. If you're playing a bar, you got to just show like we got songs, we got songs. Songs, Three songs, songs, again. songs. Confirm that you've been rocking out and mm-hmm. introduce the last part of the set. Thank everybody for coming. Big song, big song, close. Thank again. I think th- I, I think that's perfectly reasonable. Um, and I think that's all Joe wanted. But Stephen is literally just doesn't say anything. Sure. Jo- Joe is basically just like. Dude, say, you know, tonight we're in like Cleveland, say, hello, Thank Cleveland. You, Cleveland. And <laughs> Stephen is like, I'm shy. And Joe's like, a little foreplay wouldn't hurt. And Stephen says, I'm not into foreplay. I'm into fucking. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is as close to like a distillation of uh, the relationship between the two of them is that you're probably going to get. Um, the album does not do well commercially. No one really throws their weight behind it marketing wise. Um, you know how these things go. They cut another album, Get Your Wings, which also is not a commercial success. But Joe notices that their live shows are getting them serious fans. Like he he basically is frustrated by the inability of the recording process to capture their live sure. essence. And that's and what so I was the listening- live shows are what I think really satisfies Joe. He's really sounds like he's struggles in the studio a lot. Yeah. And that's what I was looking for going through these early albums is like usually bands like this, uh, you know, you have your big singles early on, but uh, you know, we'll have like an album track where mm-hmm. like in the back half of a six or seven minute song, there's like an extended guitar freak out. Yeah. And that's what I always want to hear from like an early hard rock band. And I think that those are the things that capture like what they're doing on stage yeah. or, or they'll try to do. And I didn't really see that on Aerosmith. Um, but 74s, get your wings out. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's a little bit of train keeps on rolling. Kept a rolling. So- it's a pretty standard up front. Mm-hmm. But here is uh, about four minutes into this song. Yeah. And you can imagine that this would be like, feels more like the kind of thing that they might be doing on stage. It might be the thing that Joe's into more because look, listen to him go. Yeah. Have an applause. Anyway. Train kept it rolling. Good song. They also have a song on this album called Lord of the Thighs. Yes, he mentions that that it's a parody of Lord of the Flies. Yeah. You know. Oh, the 70s were crazy. Um, they go on tour with Kiss. And so basically Joe's thing is like, I really respect Kiss now. Like <laughs> we've and this is what, like he does this throughout the book, is that as he mentions, you know, musicians that he's worked with around near uh been in contact with, like he's all love. There's very few people that he's like, fuck these fuck guys. That guy. Um, that's he, that's interesting to hear because Kiss are assholes. Yeah, he's see. He said that there's been like there were some backstage fights. Yeah. between his like roadies and Kiss's roadies. Um, I guess that makes sense. But he's basically like 
when they went on tour with Kiss, Kiss was getting twice the reaction that Aerosmith was. And he's, he basically says, what do we have to do to make it? Paint ourselves blue and have monkeys flying out of our asses? I mean, that's what Kiss fucking did, and it worked. Yeah. I th- so I think, you know, as I mentioned before, of just, like, having a thing to yeah. differentiate your hard rock sound from someone else's hard rock sound. Like, Aerosmith didn't quite have it yet. And yeah. Kiss was just like, we're going to wear makeup in platforms. And, yeah. I mean, you know, Kiss, Kiss's ridiculous. show is chock full of gimmicks. Pyrotechnics, pneumatic rising drum stands. He mentions like- the drum stand. And he's like, that was pretty cool. No one was doing that yet. <laughs> but that thing was uh, a fucking disaster to tour with. Uh, um, yes. But then eventually he's just like, yeah, Kiss is great. Like, we got to know them. And like, they're just, they all they want to do is like, please the fans. Yeah. And same. Um, but Joe and Steven kind of have this friction happening as they're, mm-hmm. you know, starting to get deeper into the band um, and deeper into drugs and alcohol. Hi. This is a, you know, mm-hmm. this is a rock memoir. So like people are are drunk and uh, yep. stoned um they're into kind of everything like they do coke and heroin and like, like whatever comes deal, their way whatever comes their way the only thing that joe doesn't seem to enjoy is is marijuana not into it uh steven does things like do really bad coke that like roughs up the back of his throat and then he coughs so hard that he spits blood and he says i'm coughing up blood for this band <laughs> And Joe is just like, dude, <laughs> that's basically like going to your band and being like uh, smacking yourself in the face and being like, stop hitting myself. Stop hitting myself. Yeah, Or just like, you know, vomiting from the band. You guys are making me puke with how much you don't want success for us. <laughs> um, and Joe, I think Joe's just like, you know, Stephen is ridiculous. He's full of histrionics of one way or another. Um, but they they keep soldiering on and they record Toys in the Attic, which is their big breakthrough. And boy, howdy, is this album a breakthrough. Jesus. So Walk This Way is the obvious like hit from this. Yeah, but let's uh let's go a little bit of a round about here. This is a Toys Take in the Take us around. Toys in about. the Attic. So you we all know Walk This Way as, you know, the uh iconic like mid tempo rocker, but mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to come in on this uh you know, full throttle, bottom of the wall jam that opens the album. This is the title track, Toys in the Attic. So even from like the, you know, this is more in line with, you know, the the album opener I played off their first album, but, you know, you can really hear how they built it up into something much more exceptional. Yes. It's much more Aerosmith. And, of course get a little walk this way in. So the like backstory of this is that you know they were kind of struggling you know they were putting songs together and uh, Joe had this riff and Steven hadn't written lyrics yet it sounds like Steven is somewhat of a tardy slash a slow lyric writer and then um uh they went to see young frankenstein and there was a <laughs> like a line in there about like walk this way and he, he's like hold on i gotta go and he like writes lyrics and comes back and everyone is like this is so nasty like this is like the nastiest song i've ever heard and my my like shtick about this is like it just sounds like Hey, diddle diddle with a cat in the fiddle and the cow don't know. Like, it just sounds like, a, like a, it's a nursery rhyme. I like, I understand that it's like, it was filthy for the time and now it just feels like cartoony. Yes. 
And it's just, I mean, it's so, especially since it eventually becomes their, like, comeback vehicle. So, like, it's been reheated again. Yeah, I think it's a song that it's hard to have a uh, non-jaded uh, reaction to mm-hmm. it. Just because, you know, you grow up with a song like this in the built into the fabric of pop culture. Yeah. Uh, and its riff is, like, in, ingrained in your mind. So when you actually listen to the song and think about it, you're like. But it is kind of gross. Yeah. Like the lyrics are kind of gross. So I took a big chance at the high school dance with my missing who was ready to play. Wasn't me, she was fooling, but she knew what she was doing when she taught me how to walk this way. She told me to. You fucked somebody at a high school dance. Hopefully, he's referring to a time when he was in high school. That's the mid 70s. It's not guaranteed. Who knows? Whom knows? Whom knows? Um, so, yeah, Toys in the Attic just like absolutely crushes it. I mean, speaking of their, their like gross, but. They're like ostensibly gross, but also kind of eye rolly. The next song in this album is a ten my or big ten inch record, big ten inch record, uh, yeah. where he keeps talking about like girls wanting to handle his big ten inch record. <laughs> uh, but it like gets to the point where even within the conceit of the song, it like it breaks down making sense. Like I believe there's a line in this <laughs> where it's like I I thought you might want to suck my big ten inch. <laughs> Record. And I'm like, why would anybody put a record in their mouth? At least keep your metaphor consistent. Yeah. Come on, dude. I thought you would want to, you know, examine my big 10 inch record for cracks. Dust put a and sleeve on my. <laughs> put a sleeve on is kind of good. Yeah. Practice yeah. Safe, safe record. Yeah. Um, Take a needle to my. Ooh, that's Ugh. that's pretty. Well, I was about to say that's pretty Aerosmith, right? but. Uh, J- Joe shares a story where he tries to shoot coke one time and he ends up bleeding everywhere. He's like, needles and me don't mix. Well, good. <laughs> he prefers to he prefers to snort things, or he preferred to. I believe he's sober now. But it's also like on the, this album, you know, they're moving. A, they're at least trying things differently from their like straightforward blues rock, mm-hmm. hard rock thing, especially as exemplified on Sweet Emotion, which has this like kind of trippy uh, intro. It moves into this like groove rock, yeah, thing. Um, uh, Joe says that there was some brass at the label that was like, I don't understand. How am I supposed to tell record stores to label Aerosmith's Toys in the Attic? Is it blues? Is it rock? Is it pop? And Joe was like, I don't care. That's not my problem. Yes. What kind of record exec listens to this album is like, this is this rock music? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Is this rock? Never and roll? underestimate the absolute boneheadedness of like any, I feel like any record executive is at least seven years behind where they need to be in terms yes. of where the, the recording industry is, which is why Napster ended up like eating everything alive. Cause everyone was like, no, 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 no. It's like 1999 records are amazing. They're doing really well. CDs will exist forever. <laughs> This technology we invented literally seven years ago will be the future forever. <laughs> anyway, I really like Sweet this song. This is, is probably, this is probably my favorite Aerosmith song. Yeah, this is really good. This is some glasses in your car type nonsense. Yeah. Rolling, rolling down a, a hilly back road with the wind in your hair. Um, Steven said that the lyrics for Sweet Emotion were inspired by Joe's girlfriend and eventually wife, Alyssa, mm-hmm. who he hated. Okay. <laughs> um, 
Alyssa was like a, this is a she, classic feature. Everyone had known each other since they were in high school or like post high school. Since they were Beantown Bad Boys. Beantown, well, yeah, po- uh, outside of Beantown Bad Boys. And he, Great, greater Beantown he Bad marries Boys. her and everyone hates her. It just sounds like she is maybe a little bit of a, she just, she. It's, it sounds like she likes to spend people's money and sure. be famous. How are they doing with their label? Are they actually making their money or are they doing the thing where like their label banks all their money and gives them a an allowance? <sighs> They are bank. They are banking their shit, and their label is giving them an allowance. This seems. I w- I, w- I want to read more about this. Uh, it seems to be such a common practice in the seventies of these people just getting screwed by yeah. getting enough money to like li- live day to day in like a fancy hotel room and have as much drugs as they want, but like literally having no money. Yes. In the long term. Yeah. And the sentiment is the same in book after book is like, oh, man, when I really thought about it, I thought maybe I should get my accountant in here. Like, maybe I should get someone to take a double look. And then at somebody this. puts a gigantic pile of cocaine in front mound. of them. And they're like, I'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow, Yeah. I mean, like equate a rock star thinking about their label finances with me thinking about dealing with my taxes. Uh huh. But like times a million. Yes. So like I understand it. I don't want to think about my taxes. No. And Joe Perry doesn't want to think about his his also advances. You also uh, compare your life of like, you know, working and, and enjoying yourself to Getting a life paid of the like, same amount of money every two weeks. To, but to a life of endless unremittent pleasure. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's hard to peel yourself out of that to do a finances meeting. Yes. Correct. Um they they get massive Aerosmith Blue Army forms. I don't know if you had heard of the Blue Army, but this is basically just like their fans who love wearing double denim. <laughs> denim on the top. I'd, denim I'd on the heard bottom. of the Blue Army, but I didn't know why yep. it was such. That's why. Because the band wore a lot of denim, so they wanted to dress like the band. Yes. They do things like throw firecrackers on stage. Oh, great. Wonderful. Because in the great tradition of rock and roll, when you love a band, you, you try, try to, to hurt, hurt them. them. Yes, exactly. Oh, God. <laughs> um, oh, I, I love that it's double denim. Yeah. Hey, that's it's kind of cool. And an early name for fandoms. Now we're drowning in fandoms. So Blue Army is kind of hilarious. Blue Army. I'm sure that that's modeled off of the Kiss Army. Yeah. Which is uh, the an early fan club based system set up around Kiss. And now we have the Rihanna Navy. The Rana Navy. So when is the like the Selena Gomez National Guard going to happen? <laughs> uh, I am I'm forming the uh, the Ariana Grande Revolutionary Vanguard. <laughs> the Grande Militia. Yes. Um, yes. So Aerosmith has their follow up, which is called Rocks. Simply put, as Joe rocks. says, diamonds are called rocks and nothing is harder than a diamond. I wanted the hardest rocking record imaginable. Once again, Joe just wants to rock. This cements uh, Aerosmith's reputation as America's ultimate garage band. As garage band? That's what Joe calls them. I, lo- I mean, I guess, dude, but I don't. I really don't put you in that uh, tradition. But it's taking the garage and blowing it up to arena form. Yeah. The arena is just a really big garage. Here's the title or the first track off that album, "Back in the Saddle," which has this little uh, uh, lead-in, but then turns into quite a stopper. Mm. Here we go. Mm. Oh, yeah. I don't think you even realized this was Aerosmith. This is where he, Steven Tyler starts sounding 
like more Steven like Steven Tyler. Tyler, like the Steven Tyler he would become. Yeah. I like that this song has a uh, vibe that I would call uh, menacing mm-hmm. until the yodeling part later. Then <laughs> <laughs> they kind of ruin it. I don't know if we'll, we'll get to it to hear it, but there is definitely a, a, a part where he goes yodeling who, and it kind of ruins the vibe for mm. me. But uh, right now it has like a kind of dark cat, a cowboy feel. Yeah. Dark, dark leader hosen. Anyway, this, I'm back. <laughs> this one doesn't have as many uh, uh, straight up all time iconic hits yeah. as toys, but, but they're uh, still chugging along. But you know what? It still rocks. It still rocks. It rocks. But the band is starting to burn out. Yes, they're not fading away. They're burning out. They're pushed too hard. They're touring constantly. They are being pushed by the record label to make another album immediately after the last album. More, more, more. Do it, do it, do it. Um, drugs, alcohol, holy shit. Uh, I mean, they do go 73, 74, 75, 76 yeah. on a constant upward trajectory of making albums and yes. touring. That's a, that's a hard four years. It is. Um, and the, uh, Joe refers to, or he thinks about this time period as the time when he uh, drank rare vintage wine like Sprite. Ah! Um, and he had a friend from who's, Morocco. Who's among us? Who's among us? He had a friend from Morocco who made leather suits in whatever color I named. Um, and when he was delivered the suits. Mauve, burgundy, <laughs> taupe. Off black. <laughs> dark gray. Clear? Clear. Clear leather. Make it happen. Um, clear leather. Wow. That's a good uh, album title. Uh, <laughs> when the suits were delivered to him, there would just be like a couple of grams of really good cocaine stuffed in the pockets. That's when you know you've made it. That's the Phantom Custom Thread. Custom leather suits full of cocaine. Yes. Um, but he's like, he's totally burnt out. He, at one point he like crashes his car on the way, uh, back to his house outside of Boston and a cop obviously comes to like deal with it. And the cop recognizes him and he's mm-hmm. like, you're Joe Perry. Yeah. Um, are you okay? He's like, yeah, you want to like, can I take you somewhere? And Joe's like, let's go to Dunkin' yeah, you Donuts. You want to grab a beer? <laughs> they go to Dunkin' Donuts, <laughs> which is like the most Boston area thing imaginable. Always Dunkin'. So Joe basically, he leaves the band after like, it's just like, it seems like a, a kaleidoscope, a cacophony of stress. Well, they do and, one more, one more album in 77, right? Uh, yes. I think that this one's notable as he leaves the band because this is the only one where he sings a, a lead track on. Mm. So this is Bright Light Fright off 77's Draw the Line. I don't think I've ever heard him sing. I would call him a perfectly adequate singer. Yeah. Also, that that sax is great. Punkish, punkish song. Um. So yeah, Joe, like he basically is, he's totally burnt out, and he's just like, I'm gonna walk away. I'm gonna, as he, I think he puts it, he's like, I'm gonna fucking quit, (laughs) and he starts his own. Band the Joe Perry Project. JPX, it's like, it's Joe his, Perry Experience. This is in uh, in 1979. And this is, his whole point is like, I want to get back to my blues roots. And like, also, I don't really want to deal with Steven. Like, he's a diva. Yeah. It's nice to like, get away from him. Um, he also leaves his wife after having a child with him or her. Uh, the kid's like one years old and he's like, I'm out. This sucks. Gotta quit the band. 
Gotta quit the wife. Gotta it, quit the kid. It kind of reminds me of um, uh, uh, Daryl Hall's or uh, John Oates's um, like sort of reckoning where he's just like, I need to take stock of my life <laughs> and just pare everything down. Yeah. Don't think of it as leaving his wife. Think of it as Marie Kondoing his wife. <laughs> uh, and by the way, like everyone is in like pretty serious debt at this point because yeah, the, sure. the, the structuring of their deal, like because they've been doing nothing but money. drugs and buying mansions yes. off of his only record advances for Mother's almost days. a decade. Mm hmm. Um, so he's part of the reason he needs, he wants to play music, but he also, he needs to tour and make money, yes. um, to start kind of paying back his life. And he, he writes the song, uh, black velvet pants for okay. the Joe Perry project. And he needs Look, to it's, cast. He's maturing. He's moved on from his custom leather pants yes. to black velvet pants. He needs a to, more sensual pants. Yeah. He needs to cast a woman in this like video for it to wear black velvet the titular pants. black velvet the pants. titular black velvet pants and he's looking through his headshots and then this this pair of eyes stares at him from the headshots and he's like whoa and this is this beautiful blonde named billy montgomery and he's immediately <laughs> like name. damn like this chick i want i i know i just ended a relationship with i a thought i was for- just casting a music video but i was really casting a wife <laughs> casting my heart <laughs> um he has an instant crush he calls it a spiritual attraction, which sounds very Keatus like of him. Yes. That's what I feel like that's what he all went for these, the whole enchilada of love. The whole enchilada. I feel like that's what all these rockers do. He's like, no, 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 no. It wasn't just it wasn't just physical. It was a spiritual attraction. Look I found her, God in that woman's boobies. They're poets. Yeah. He's a he's a poet, poet of shredding. He's like, I looked at that woman and I saw the shape of a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and she's never heard of Aerosmith. <laughs> well, so, you notice he loves him. She's for like him. a new wave, like kind of punk girl. Okay, so she's like Aerosmith Billy Hill. Montgomery. Billy Montgomery, and she they get together, and she's like, "This is great. You're awesome. You need to stop doing drugs." Okay, great. And he's like, and "He's like, yeah, probably." Okay, so he gets kind of like semi sober. He stops drinking, and he mostly stops doing cocaine. But he starts doing a lot of like, uh, like cocaine adjacent type of drugs. Like I think. I don't know if Xanax was a thing back then, but I think he was doing Xanax okay. or whatever the Xanax equivalent was back then. Um, he's, he's maintaining. It's not good though. Uh, but they get married a few years later. Steven Tyler buys them an underwater scooter as their wedding gift. What the fuck is that? You know, when I had to look this up myself, Oh, you know, when it... people are like uh, snorkeling and they have to hold that little, it looks like a fan with a propeller. Yes. With a propeller. And it looks, and it kind of motors That's them through. such a specific gift. Were they it's... snorkeling heads? They liked well. He likes the water. I he's, guess he's like an old, an OG marine biology boy. Um, but true. he he was like at the time he was like whoa 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 too expensive. Like <laughs> I know how much money you have, which is zero dollars. Like I'm going to give this back to you. But then they start using the underwater scooter, and it's too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> so silly. And this is where it's like Joe and Steven, They have this combative, creative relationship. But I think they also just kind of like vibe as humans. Like they enjoy chilling with each other and with their like respective girlfriends or wives or whatever. Although Steven hated Alyssa, but Steven likes Billy, so it's. Anyway, it's been five years at this point. Joe finally goes back to Aerosmith. He's like, great, I'm ready to to get back into it. Meanwhile, Aerosmith has released uh, two albums that are considered the the nadir, nadir. of their career. Mm. And you can tell that their career is in trouble because they release two live albums within uh, within six years or so. That's the common, I feel like that's the, the real sign is when people are putting out greatest hits or live albums. Yeah. It, it, it's a sign of trouble. It goes live album, new album, new album, 
uh, let's do a live album again. Let's go back to the hit. Find some way to re-release, to release a version of Sweet Emotion. People right. seem to like that song. Right. Um, yes. And so it's kind of like Joe needs Aerosmith. Aerosmith needs Joe. They're, they, doing, they're doing the dance and they just gotta, they've been switching partners and they just need to get back to each other. And that dosy dough. Um, the first thing they do is get rid of their old managers and hire this guy, Tim Collins. Okay. Tim Collins, Joe somehow found him when he was with, when he was doing the Joe Perry project and he admired Tim because Tim took him on when nobody else would. It was basically like Tim believed in him. Tim believed in his, in the vision. You got some licks left in you. Tim probably put up some of his own cash as well, which might've helped. And so Joe was like, let's, let's get Tim on board. And everyone was like, okay, fine. Um, and Frank Connolly took one last drag of his cigar and disappeared into a puff of tobacco smoke. Uh, sa- I mean, tragically, Frank Connolly, like he died. That's why like, he, oh. <laughs> he had, yeah, no, he, he had like cancer, um, like relatively early. Otherwise they probably would have kept him for a while longer, but it was also known that Frank Connolly was like the regional wizard and they needed like a national wizard. Sure. Um, but like Joe is devastated by Frank Connolly's oh, no. death. So like, this is a, this is a guy who's truly left a mark. Anyway, um, Tim Collins comes on. More on Tim Collins later. In 1986, uh, they are offered the opportunity In to In 1986, record. Aerosmith is done with mirrors. <laughs> with mirrors. They are through with them. <laughs> They're only looking forward, not looking backward. Yes. Yes. That's, that's what Joe always says. Joe's like the Don Draper of rock. He's always like, the past is in the past. Just forget this. Move on. Steal somebody's identity. Get a new job. Resurface you'll, a few years later. You'll be shocked. Dump at, your first wife. Get a new one. What? What's the Don Draper line? You'll be shocked at how much it never happened. Yeah, that's like that's Joe Perry in a nutshell. Sure. Um. So they record. <laughs> they they get the opportunity to record "Rock This Way" with Run DMC, and that's like their thing. That's like that yes. brings them back into the zeitgeist. Uh, one hundred percent. Let's listen to a little bit of that. I think it's um hard to realize how like much trailblazers run DMC were in mm-hmm. bringing rap to the forefront. Um, I think that, I mean, I, I wonder if they have a memoir or anything because uh, I would love to do them someday, but I think it really is like going through some of the earlier rougher, like DJ of like party based rap that mm-hmm. it was percolating up in the late seventies, like run really infusing a like pop music sensibility into it in a way. Uh, and I think that this is a prime example of them like knowing how to get into that pocket of mainstream music. So uh, here's the walk DM, the run DMC Aerosmith lab. The beastie boys were at this recording session, by the way. Sure. Just uh, ambiently. Yeah. The most mid eighties thing ever. They're probably fucking 20 year old kids just like making fun of everybody. They needed to record a new bass part. And, uh, Joe was like, I didn't bring a bass. And they were like, I'll bring a new base. <laughs> That's how I imagine they said everything. So did he like re-record new guitar, like the guitar part over I there, so. like drum machine? I bit? think it was it's- a fresh, fresh recording, yeah, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. It honestly makes you wish that all the bands or all the acts that like sample stuff now, like actually got the was people redone. to re-record that. Yes, yes. 
I mean, it would be impossible for a number of reasons, but it would be awesome. At least for the living people, it'd be cool to, yeah, yeah. to do it all over again. I would also say that this is like one of the, to me, rare instances of not just uh, white uh, pl- plundering of black music in order to become relevant because I feel like it was kind of a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, this is like a true collabo. That being said, the music that originally inspired Joe Perry was black blues music. Yes. So <laughs> maybe not totally, but it seemed like at least Run DMC had as much to benefit from this song that Aerosmith did. Yes. Have you ever seen the music video for this song? Yeah, where they were like, literally you, breaking down the Berlin Wall between, between hip-hop rock and, and yes. rock. And it's, this, it's this very, eventually birthed us a uh, Linkin Park. Yeah, as, cor- <laughs> as corny as it is, it's like actually incredibly s- symbolic. Yes. <laughs> this song's pretty good. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, it's good. Good for everybody involved. Um, around the same time, everyone in Aerosmith goes to rehab. Literally <laughs> everyone. Everyone gets sober at the same time, and it's they're publicly sober. They the gang goes to rehab. They like announce to the press. They're like, we're sober now. Um, and We are done with mirrors. <laughs> Coke mirrors. <laughs> we are only using mirrors to look at ourselves. Um, Permanent Vacation was like their comeback album. Dude looks like a lady came from that. Angel came from. Well, let's that. let's hit a track off "Done with Mirrors" because that's a. Li- I think that there's an interesting distinction musically between okay. these um these two. Uh, here's a little uh let let the music do the talking, which I guess is what they wanted to. Uh... Are they saying that you know ignore my reputation, let the music do the talking? Yeah, let's forget about the drama. Let's put everything that's behind us mm. uh, that we had behind us. Let's let the music do the talking. Everyone wants, don't they? Anyway, I just think that this this has more of a connection with like the seventies yes. uh, stuff that they have. I'm gonna skip a little in here. I mean, Tyler is definitely moving more into like fully come Steven into what he is Tyler he has become. A, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's often that's like in conversation with the uh, kind of metal stuff that's going on mm-hmm. on now. But then we skip one year. Uh, for, further to permanent vacation and let's look at uh, Dude Looks Like a Lady and now we're suddenly in that very glossy like pop mm-hmm. hair metal production mm-hmm. of the time this was I it's think like their a first lot- encounter with the sampler yeah. which is how they got that like ah. with just horn sections yeah like this this is like even more MTV than the thing. There's like a line that was crossed between totally. these two albums, you know? Mm-hmm. Which I think is also like because genres were starting to already blur. Like they. It's they all just like becoming early, pop music. Yes, exactly. That like rap music can be pop music, rock music can be pop music. Yeah. Yes. It's a, it's a good pop song, though. Good but pop it's like. Song. Very perfect, perfect theme for uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's like very essentially different from like the, the early album stuff, yes. you know? And I think Joe's like toot on that is like whatever kind of keeps us mm-hmm. in in the public eye, but also like I just wanted to rock. Yes. Yeah. I mean this song it does rock. 
Solid rock and roll song. Solid. Um, so they're like, they're back. They go on tour. Guns N' Roses opens for them. Uh, Joe really respects. One, so of, like, the, at this one mu- of the, the through lines of this show, and I wondered if this came out in uh, the book, mm-hmm. was that like every band coming up like loves Aerosmith and wants to be Aerosmith. Yes. Yes. All of the 80s hair metal bands mm-hmm. like they it's it's clear. He's basically just like even kiss a little bit when I was reading about them. Like mm-hmm. they really looked up to Aerosmith and wanted to be them guns and roses like yeah. loved Aerosmith and they wanted were, to be Aerosmith. They were totally the blueprint for how yeah. to do rock and roll. Like every rock band from like 1973 to like 1992 was like, we just want to be the next Aerosmith. Yes. Yes. And then the, everybody wanted to be the next Nirvana. Yes. That that's yeah yeah that's exactly right. Um, they Joe really respects Guns N' Roses like the fresh blood energy. Yeah. Um, and because he's like he's like he acknowledges you know we're in our thirties and they're in their twenties like yeah. we are becoming the elder statesmen of mm-hmm. rock and roll. Yes, sad as that is. Um, they also gave them really nice like Halliburton luggage at the end of the tour. <laughs> Apparently that was a tradition is for the the headliners to give opening acts gifts. I feel Aww. like that was especially a good one. And I slash told uh, Joe, he's like, yeah, I still use that luggage. <laughs> That's mostly funny to imagine slash using like 25 year old luggage. Do you think he gave him a hat box? Oh my God. That's or a great question. Do you think question. the luggage is good enough that you can keep your hats in it? If you knew slash you and were getting him a set of luggage, you would definitely get him a uh, check bag, carry on hat box. Hat box. Right? Yes. That's, I mean, if, you know, if you respect him, that's what you would, you would do. Yes. If you respect him as one an hat box equals one respect. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Aerosmith is like, you know, they're obviously not the fresh young things on the block, but they look young enough to fit in with the new baby <laughs> bands on MTV. That's sure. what Joe says. They, they basically are just kind of sliding in there of like staying on in relevant because they're still like, they're still fuckable. Yeah. And they've got like a deep enough back catalog that's still getting air radio play mm-hmm. like i'm guarantee you at this time this is what like we're getting up until like 1990 yes um you know i guarantee you like sweet emotion is getting played at least once a day yeah. on an fm station mm-hmm. in every major market in the united states yep. so they're like there's continuity there continuity you yes know? but despite this new success the drama never stops um tim collins I thought I thought that they were done with mirrors. You thought the no, 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 they're never done. Tim Collins was the guy that they hired to manage them. Um, and he was chosen because he was willing to sort of drag the band out of obscurity or help drag the band out of obscurity. He starts to become a control freak cult leader is okay. like essentially what Joe recognizes. He says, we were the puppets and Collins, the puppeteer. If Johnny Appleseed went around planting apple seeds, Tim Collins went around planting bullshit seeds. <laughs> so basically Tim Collins is like, he, I love when a metaphor is surprisingly bad. Yeah. <laughs> like you think that he's going to say something fun and clever and then it just totally hits a brick wall at the end. Yeah. He was planting rotten apple seeds, uh, growing a tree that would foster, you know, toxic fruit. poison apples. He's like, no, but the apple seeds. trees he planted would bear a toxic fruit. He was planting bullshit, bullshit seeds that grew bullshit trees. Uh, bullshit. Sometimes I look back on my life and think, am I planting bullshit seeds? Hey, it's always a good thing to assess for yourself. Like, are you planting apple seeds? Or are you planting bullshit seeds? Think about the seeds you're planting, ladies and gentlemen and others. Um, so uh, Tim Collins does things like. Uh, makes everyone go to therapy, makes all the band wives go to therapy, 
Um, he's constantly telling the band, like, your sobriety's in danger. If you don't, like, get your shit together, like, this whole operation's gonna fail. Nothing like trying to maintain somebody's sobriety by constantly referring how on edge they are. It's unbelievable. Um, and so, like, his whole thing is basically, like, I was the one who got them back together and successful. And I think it's, like, an ego thing. And... He, now that I'm that puppet master, like I'm just going to make everyone believe that I'm the, still the key to their success. Mm-hmm. Um, he makes the whole band go to rehab again, again, even though they're still, I assume, mostly sober. They're totally sober with they go to rehab, rehab with their wives. Wow. The, the wives have to go. And so Joe is constantly being like shat upon by being he. Tim Collins says things like. Your relationship with Billy has reached a new level of neuroticism. If we don't intervene, it could ruin the entire band. He's like this like weird. Cult that is like guy. real cult leader shit of like reinforcing how weak everyone is all the mm-hmm. time and how close to despair and like, you know, cutting undermining everybody's self-confidence. Yeah. And one one thing that I feel like it maybe isn't explicitly described in the book, but is a thing is that like bands have bosses and like having a boss is really bad for your brain. Yes. Like you can have a good boss, but most of these bosses have bad. Or most st- of these bands have bad bosses. And also like even when you have a good boss, it means that part of yourself and your mind is enthralled to somebody else. Yes. Yes. And these are people who, you know, they probably didn't go to college or have like a very traditional education. They don't have a lot of like actual work experience. And so this is their these are their lives. Like it's actually kind of nuts. Like you mentioned, like the idea of like band labor before. Like I think Mm -hmm. this is a case where it's like clearly a thing that it's a band of people who had really bad drug problems (laughs) that they sorted out. And yet there's still someone who is just controlling them by sheer kind of force of will. Yeah. And is saying like I'm the one who connects you to record labels. Like I'm 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 the one standing between you and like an amazing record deal. Like, this is my band. This is my band, and you guys need to behave. But yet these are like rockers who go out, like they're the ones mm-hmm. making the money. It's a whole I don't know tales all this time I guess. But uh, Joe is basically like Collins is nuts. But we you hold the key. They're they're about to sign a deal with Sony that's for like thirty million dollars or something. Okay. So he's like, we need also, to chill. Like, that's even getting that at like the a, 20 years into a band like this is career. I mean, yeah, I guess it just goes to show like how much again, Nirvana changed the the mm-hmm. game. But just thinking about like how a band like Aerosmith in like 1990, 1991, like a year or two before Nirvana broke would mm-hmm. still be able to sign a $30 million contract because that was still like as far as record agencies or record agencies, record labels knew like that was what rock music was. Yes. Yeah. And then like two years later, I'm sure that that record contract would be like 3 million. Yes. Yeah, totally. They were kind of the last wave of that in a way. Um, I mean, same with, we were talking about this back on episode one with uh, guns and roses, mm-hmm. you know, that it was like, you know, one way of thinking about it, they were like the last biggest gasp of a type yeah. of rock music that then like totally flipped like like right after their second album came because out. when when duff mckagan tried to do his when velvet revolver basically didn't they like get dropped or something yeah yeah, yeah. which would be i mean that was like 15 years after this but yeah. yeah yeah anyway so it's it's a lot of mental stress i mean speaking of that let's listen to a, a clip from uh 1989's pump pump which I do like this record cover because it basically is two two trucks pumping each other. Cool, 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 cool. Cool, cool. Great imagery. Uh, this is everyone's favorite um, 
Oh, good morning, Mr. Tyler. Going down. Is this love in an elevator? Oh, yeah. That's that. It's more more of the same from a uh, dude look like dude looks like a lady style uh, rock, but this is like custom made for MTV. There's like a uh, you know the, it suggests a video very immediately that you know sure to get great play. I, I just mm-hmm. think that this is like very of its time. Like this is you know the type of thing that that was big above the fold rock music in yes. 1989. Yeah, um, yeah, they so. Yeah, they they cruise into the 90s and uh, their 90s songs are kind of like those instant classic early to mid 90s bombastic rock uh, jams like Living on the Edge Mm -hmm. um, and Crazy. And they have those like classic early 90s videos to go with them. But wait, off that same album, this is 93's Get a Grip, which is four years later from uh, 89. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's just listen to a second of a song that I'm sure will be near and dear to both our hearts. Eat the Rich. Ah, yes. I remember listening to this when I was a kid, actually. There's a lot of yayas going on. That's how you know it's not when it's not your little John. This morning on the wrong side of the bed, and how I got to thinking about all those things you said about ordinary people and how they make you sick. And if calling things kicks back on you, then I hope this does the trick. The very rare hyper class conscious uh, monster hair metal song from the early 90s. I'll take it. They're kind of running on fumes in the 90s in terms of like personal lives of just like being driven crazy by Tim Collins. And they eventually just hit a total impasse where they're like, we can't work with this guy any longer. Tim Collins was doing things like he found a picture of uh, Steven Tyler with two like buxom beauties in mm-hmm. the Caribbean and sure. sent it to Steven Tyler's wife at the time or girlfriend at the time and was like busted and was just doing stuff like that. Totally interfering, telling Steven one thing and then Steven would get mad at uh, Joe and then vice versa. And he was just pulling all these strings and it was ridiculous. So they finally were like, they all sat down and were like, fuck off, dude. 
And then, and this is also at the same time that they're trying to record a late 90s album, Nine Lives, which was like really hamstrung. They were working with Glenn Ballard, who's a producer that was probably best known for um, producing Jagged Little Pill, the Alanis Morissette album. So he is hot, hot, hot right now. He's hot, hot, hot. But like Joe is really frustrated at him because he was using way too much like tech in the studio Mm -hmm. and recording way too many tracks and like not really being decisive about which ones to use. And Joe was just like, we're not making music, man. Like we're not rocking. If you separate Joe from the rock, things are going to get tense. So they, they <laughs> he doesn't want any of that studio meddling. No, they, they finished nine lives. They have to fire Glenn Ballard. So it's kind of like a, you know, shedding their cocoon. Once again, they get yeah. rid of their manager, their producers they, they start over um, at the end. And of that's 90s, interesting. Cause even like the last two albums have like, you know, big recognizable songs of this and this mid nineties album has like nothing on it. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like they're, they're just not really in their groove at the time. I don't think. Yeah. But I don't want to miss a thing is what brings them back into prominence because that's their first like pop hit, like pop. Yes. Hit. Crossover, huge pop hit. Yeah. Well, I mean, crossover might be a, a weird, or to use for them, but that that song is like a a major pop track. Yes, that was the you know the first thing I was aware of as Aerosmith as Aerosmith. Um, also, apparently J- Jerry Bruckheimer threw a rap party at the NASA headquarters. Okay, <laughs> which is like just side note, like that's pretty cool. I feel like Jerry Bruckheimer can do you? anything he wants. NASA, we're gonna throw a party for. Aerosmith at your control center. Oh, there's nothing there's so nothing sensitive equipment or information here at the NASA control center. Let me let me check my Google Cal. Okay, yeah, no, there's a launch like two days before that, a launch like five days after that, but like you're good to go. Just, we'll like, just send an away message yourself. up to the people in the space station. You guys, they'll be fine for a night. Yeah, they can like video chat in if they want to. Um, so like Aerosmith is kind of holding on to relevance, right? What's well, yeah, it's crazy because they get like. They're they keep being out for a while mm-hmm. and then they do the one thing that brings them back in because like keeping on this like rock train that they're doing into the mid 90s by like time 1997 rolls around like just thinking about what the greater music scene of 1997 is like Aerosmith does not classic Aerosmith does not fit in there no. and yet they release the one song the one type of song mm-hmm. that will put them back into the conversation mm-hmm. there, which is not a song that they normally do. Yes. Like that long, like pop ballad thing. Like full of strings. Full of strings Shock and stuff. Full of strings. Yeah. Uh, as you were saying at the beginning, a, a slow dance song. Yes. Like a, a, a middle school slow dance song, a which song is like. To howl uh, to your friends at yeah, top volume. Which again, if we're just to listen to a clip from, you know, 1993. You know, that's where they were in 93. And then four years later, they produce something that like doesn't make sense for them. And then they come right back with with something that does put them in the pocket. And it's the same with them mm-hmm. disappearing in the early 80s and popping back up in that like. Yeah. At the tail end or at rather the height of the like big goofy hair metal video day yeah. video days. And they're kind of they definitely like pick up on the right trends to attach themselves to. Yeah. Such as hip hop as a whole. Sure. But are also not like it all. It always sounds like. Aerosmith like I don't think they ever tried to be a grunge band no or like you know the year before I don't want to miss a thing came out like probably the biggest rock record was okay computer which is completely that's like if you put a negative a mirror negative image of Aerosmith you'd get Radiohead yes right yes whereas Radiohead sounds like wind trying to fuck a computer 
Shout out to Ari- Britney Spanos. <laughs> Shout out to hashtag Britney Spanos. Uh, Aerosmith sounds like rocks. Just sounds like rocks falling on a shiny, beautiful truck. Yes. Um, diamonds and rocks, like normal rocks and nice rocks. Yes. So yeah, they they're cruising through. Uh, they cruise through the nineties, holding onto their relevance. Wait, wait, one more question about uh, don't want to miss a thing. Yeah. Was that intentional? Was that strategic? Or they were like, yeah, sure, we'll. Just- Yes. We'll do like this oh. was specifically for the soundtrack. Well, but like, I mean, yeah. was they like, we're going to do this kind of song to do a comeback or were they like, yeah, we can do like a bat one off ballad for this movie. I think they thought of it as a one off ballad and then were genuinely surprised by it. How success. much it, it hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, the basically the big They've they've gotten over their drugs. That I feel like drugs was phase one of like their conflict. Phase two is Tim Collins. Phase three is just Steven Tyler going off the rails. <laughs> like the two thousands up until now really feel like at least as Joe describes it, the dissolution of Joe and Steven's relationship, like working relationship. That's Basically, interesting. Yeah. Most of these stories have like the dissolution in the middle and then a reconciliation. Yeah, there's not really that. Mm. Not the, it ends with more the blood's more bad than than good blood. Um, Joe is basically just like our writing partnership when, was never 100 percent solid. Like it didn't feel like a Lennon McCartney situation mm-hmm. or a Jagger Richard situation. Like uh, it felt like Stephen wrote with me when it was comfortable for him and when it was convenient. And then if he had the opportunity to go do other things, he would go do them and he would totally cut me out of it. And I never felt like we were like equal. It was, yeah, it was it fits and starts. Yes. Um, so that like that, the song jaded from which was 2001 was Stephen writing with other people. Um, and Joe is kind of like, this is really pop. This is like, it, it's pop that is chasing popness. Yeah. This almost sounds like a Foo Fighters song to me or something. In that way, it's like more modern than a lot of the stuff they've been doing. Up yeah. After that. It's got that sort of like jangly, swirly, like alt rockness to yeah. it. Because when you think about Joe's inspiration, which is like just super hard rocking blues, like this isn't really that. No. He doesn't even really get to do anything interesting in, in it, which is maybe why he doesn't like it. But he wrote it? No. Uh, Steven, Steven wrote, wrote it away with, from him yeah. with other people. I mean, you could. this is very much like a vocalist song, right? Yeah. Yeah, the guitar is pretty much an afterthought. Um, Steven also wants to keep staying with the trends so he does things like uh, record songs like one called Trip Hoppin will you find this I didn't listen to this this, because I wanted to be surprised is this on one of our uh, is this on an Aerosmith album yes I think so let's see if I can find it and Joe Joe thinks that this is ridiculous he's like what are you doing Steven records this song yeah oh I see it which album is this off of? This is off of uh, 2001's Just Push Play. Okay. Which trend is this staying with? I don't know if it's just the lyrics. Okay, so this is essentially a cliched Aerosmith song, but he just 
Steven Tyler thought that trip hopping was something that people said. <laughs> he thought that was slang. Yeah, you want to go trip hopping tonight? Trip hopping. Trip hopping. He must have mistook the genre trip hop for a, a verb. <laughs> Is that was that the same with honking on Bobo? <laughs> that he, he thought that that was like a thing that people said. Yeah, hey, hey, buddy, you gonna be uh, honking on Bobo later? Yeah, wink, wink. <laughs> uh, me, me and the old lady are gonna go out and do a little uh, honking on Bobo. Mm, see you there. Uh, yeah. So these sort of like straying from the core group, Joe doesn't really like. Steven goes behind Joe's back and auditions for Led Zeppelin. Did what? you know about this? Steven does? No, yeah. I never heard this. He he doesn't say anything. He goes and does it, and he's so unprepared that Jimmy Page calls the tryout shambolic. Oh, my God. Which, can you imagine Jimmy Page, the god, like, staring at you and being like, that was shambolic, Steven. <laughs> what are you even doing? <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't know the lyrics to songs. Oh, like, my God. Which, I don't know if he, like, scattered through them or what. <laughs> really tragic. It's- but. It would seem hard for me to for that Steven Tyler would be, be able to botch an audition for Led Zeppelin. It it's, seems like almost like he would have to be trying. He, I think he has his shit a little less together than than is appropriate. Um, uh, he also he's sliding back into addiction at this point. Um, he passes out at an Aerosmith concert after snorting Lunesta. Oh, my God. And the best so thing you is, saying is he see honking a bit of the Bobo. He's honking a little Bobo. <laughs> Um, the, the best is that he, when he came back from collapsing, he was like, I was only snorting Lanesta. I was only snorting Lanesta. As if snorting a sleeve aid is a normal thing that everybody does. Yes. Honking on Bobo. Um, so at this point, and Joe is also a little judgy about Steven Tyler eventually going on American Idol as a judge. I think he thinks that this is like. A little cheap. It's a little cheap, a little cheesy. Not really what Aerosmith is about. Um. And he, so at, at this point, he like he acknowledges that he's had amazing times with Steven and Steven's family and his family. Like they vacationed together. They've gone boar hunting together. He got him that underwater scooter. That got him the underwater scooter. That I'm was so sure fabulous. they they scooped around with it, holding hands together. Each of them holding one handle of the scooter and holding each other's hand That's, with the other hand. You need a real powerful scooter, which I'm sure it was top of the line. Yes. Um, but but like at the end of the day, he says. Fame, not an allegiance to writing music or the tradition of carrying on the blues, was and is Stephen's driving force. <laughs> he only prays to the god of fame, fame, not carrying on the lore of the god of blues. Unacceptable. Carrying on the tradition of Here blues. I am on my knees in the temple of the blues and Stephen's out there courting the cameras, talking to, to Gawker.com. Just like stoking the flames of his fame. Only, only the true believers. Spreading bullshit seeds. Yeah, spreading bullshit seeds. Uh, uh, awful. At this point, Joe's in like his 50s. He's yeah, like, of course. He's, he's getting old. So he like he he busts his knee during a concert and like tears his uh, ACL pretty bad. Okay. And he ends up addicted to Percodans. Oh my God. Because he's trying to treat his pain. Like he's basically he's trying to like soldier through it. And... It's funny, there was no hesitation about taking pain medication for his knee because I guess he was just like, I have been prescribed this. Yes. This is our entire crisis in it's America right so, now. Yeah. A doctor told me I could take this. Yes. That, it's so <sighs> upsetting to hear. Um, I mean, it's upsetting to hear everybody, but it, it's like mm-hmm. particularly telling that, um, you know, the, these like big 
name celebrities get caught up in this stuff the exact same way that everybody does. It does not matter how rich or famous you are. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that is particularly telling about how pernicious and how dangerous these things are because you know you. I mean, obviously, like rock guys and movie stars get caught up in like weird uh, quack doctors mm-hmm. fairly often. But, yep. you know, you assume that the like. Overall, the a person who makes money off of their ability to like operate their body like mm-hmm. a movie star, like a rock star, uh, would, athlete. you know, have a particular kind of attention on this. And it's just like it, it just goes to show how easy it is yeah. for anybody to fall into these traps and how disgusting our policies around these things have been. Yeah, totally. Um, so he has to go back to rehab and he kind of sorts his shit out. But uh, it's just like Duff McKagan. Mm-hmm. You can be sober for years and then like prescription drug. I feel like it. it's because it's not some like illicit powder that you like shipped in. It's like it's a legit pill. And then all of a sudden you're totally wiped out. Um, so he figures that out. That's like his kind of last stretch of personal drama. Um, he also does things like uh, just some like bucket list shit, like um, jamming with Chuck Berry. Okay. And apparently a hallmark of jamming with Chuck Berry is he'll play a weird song in a weird key and try to screw you up, <laughs> which I think is like so perfect for literally the guitar hero. Yes. Like when he, if you got the chance to jam with Chuck, he was like, I'm not letting, this isn't free. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm going to like, Oh, you thought this weird. would be easy. Yeah. He's like, I'm the, I am the guitar hero. So come, come correct when you ch- jam with Chuck. Um, but I guess he passes the test because he's allowed to play another song after the weird song. Uh, <laughs> the first Boston apartment where Joe and the band lived was made like a historical building in Boston. Yes. Great. Just because of Aerosmith? Just because of Aerosmith. Uh, and, that's, um, that's so Boston. Yes. It's extremely Boston. And then most importantly, Joe is continuing to play music, his original love. Um, he says at the end, I think back on a lifetime in rock. Have the struggles been worth it? The music has made it all worth it. And I know there's still music to come. That's Joe nice. Uh, 48 years in the rock and roll business. Oh my God. This guy is a, uh, a total legend. He's made of like, you know, cartilage and steel at this point. Yeah. and you know what we haven't talked about this but like joe perry's pretty hot too yeah he's got like a freaky chin thing going on can joe perry get it uh i think joe perry can get it um could get it sorry will will get it he will continue to get it he's got the he's got the like white hair streaks yeah he's got that like classy classy gray streak yeah like a witch yes there's a photo, there's some really quality photo inserts in this book, including one that's like him from really far away wearing like a long, long, long white flowing button down <laughs> and a blazer and flare jeans with a guitar propped up. And he's like in the desert in Dubai. Sure. That's that's the way he lives, um, man. I'll be straight. Yeah. Be straight. Aerosmith doesn't do much for me. He's not. It's not getting you. Yeah. It's not honking on your bobo. It doesn't really honk my bobo. <laughs> Uh, but uh, let's listen to one track off Honking on Bobo. Please. Um, I remember the marketing of Honking on Bobo. I this is when I, I only know like, Honking on. This is a uh, Roadrunner, the first track on it, off of it. I was kind of hoping that this would be a cover of Jonathan Richmond's Roadrunner, but I don't think that they're that kind of band. Isn't Jonathan Richmond a Boston boy? Yes. Mm. You. Jonathan Richmond fucking loves Boston more than anything. Is that song about New England? Being where he's from. Yeah. I'm from New England. See, See, I come from a place called New England. 
Yeah. Yeah, it would actually make a lot of sense. I don't know. I like. I try to have a place in my heart for big, goofy riff-based bands like this, and I certainly love like Guns N' Roses. But there's just something uh, non-adventurous, maybe. Do you want rock music that's like almost like cornier, but like owns the corny? Yeah. Either bigger and goofier, like Kiss songs, I can mm. kind of get behind because they're even like more corny than this in a lot of ways. Or like go a little more into like uh, psychedelic freakout things, like the Alice uh, Cooper songs. Yeah. A lot of those had, um, you know, good descents into uh, 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 psychedelia. Yeah. That comes more out of that that garage rock mm-hmm. um, past than I think this does. They're they're just too much in the he just loves the blues too much he won't venture outside the temple of the blues he rocks too steadily too hard yes Uh yeah I see that not to not to disparage what Joe Perry does he's just got one thing and doesn't like to leave that zone no and it's not particularly my zone other people are trip hopping all over the place well they're claiming to yeah they Whatever that means. Yes. Joe Perry just stays he stays in that rock pocket. How about you? Does uh does Aerosmith honk your bobo? <laughs> not not really, but like I get it. And I get why the Blue Army is a is a such a devoted and uh occasionally harmful contingent to Aerosmith. <laughs> Certainly if I owned a Trans Am in nineteen seventy six, I would most likely fucking love Aerosmith. Yeah. And for good reason. I yes. mean, they got they got good songs. Yeah. Uh, they consistently generate monster hits I uh, admire, that are like super respectable. I admire their ability to really ha- claw into the zeitgeist. Yeah. Without going too hard to with occasional missteps, but they have remained Aerosmith, and that has proven relevant over time. Yeah, and as I said at the beginning, uh, they've been called one of rock's biggest comebacks and their ability to dip out at the end of the 70s and come back in a huge way at the end of the 80s and mm-hmm. then dip out in the middle of the 90s and then come back in a huge way at the end of the 90s yeah is maybe very lucky but also very impressive to to reference their album perhaps they have nine lives true maybe there's a, a one last act in the Aerosmith bag although again these guys are like Pushing seventies, so maybe yeah. Not. Um, I I saw that apparently they went on a farewell tour called yeah. Aero Vederti. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as we know from our good friend Cher, you never really retire. Yeah. You got to go away to come back. They're going to be on a, a farewell tour for the next decade. Yeah, sometimes some farewells take longer than others. Yeah, and uh, Stephen Tyler's going to be in Skittles commercials until his he finally opens his mouth wide enough to swallow his own body hole. <laughs> Wow. Woo. Woo. So that's the story of Joe Perry and Aerosmith. Molly, thank you very much for weaving that tale for me. You're welcome. And really thank you to uh, the boarding school, Vermont Academy, for for really uh, inoculating Joe Perry with a potent cocktail of rock, rebellion, and Robitussin. (laughs) The classic combo. Yeah. Well, Drink up your Robitussin and uh, get back to us in two weeks where we return to you with another episode of And Introducing. Uh, until then, you can follow us on Twitter at AndIntroPod or send us an email at AndIntroducingPod at gmail.com. Our SoundCloud is at SoundCloud.com slash and dash intro dash pod. Mm. 
And please, if you're hearing this not through your subscription-based podcaster, remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you subscribe to us there, just rate us five stars that would that. that would help us a lot just honk our bobos yeah just go in there and say say you know what this podcast really honked your bobo yeah we'd uh, love that we would love to hear that we've been honking, honking your bobo always consensually though. I think a bobo honk is always consensual by nature okay uh, <laughs> so until then uh, we'll talk to you in two weeks on and introducing you do and